you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to open it with me to Mark 14. Mark 14, and this morning as we continue, continue through our study of the Gospel of Mark, we'll give our attention to verses 1 through 11 of Mark 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you can look on the pew back in front of you and there should be a, a black hardback copy of God's Word. would encourage you to, uh, to pull that out and open it with us to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. While you're finding your place there uh, in preparation for the reading of God's Word, I want to uh, take just a moment and um, make a, a quick recognition that I think is uh, right and deserved. Uh, Lord willing, uh, tomorrow we'll welcome back to our office our music uh, and missions minister, Joseph Malden. He's been away on sabbatical for these past four weeks, and we'll welcome him back, Lord willing, next Sunday to lead us in singing through worship. Um, and so we're thankful for him and all that he does among us here, incredibly gifted and talented in so many ways and brings so much to our church family. Uh, but church, we have been incredibly blessed in these past four Sundays to have Bud Duran standing in Joseph's place and leading us. Bud, you have done a fantastic job, a wonderful job, and I'm grateful uh, for your gift and service that you've used to, to bless us and to serve the Lord here. So church, would you show your appreciation uh, to Bud this morning? I'm thankful for the many ways that the Lord has blessed our church family, uh, the, the variety of gifts that he has given to us here, and for the exercising of those gifts uh, for the building up of our church and for the fame and the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. And Bud, thank you for uh, modeling that for us these past four Sundays. All right, let's get into the word this morning. Mark 14. Mark 14. I'm going to begin reading with verse 1. You listen and follow along. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray again. Our Father, we give our thanks to you for this, your holy word, a firm foundation that we can stand upon, build our lives upon. And Lord, today, as we look into it, we pray that through the power of your spirit, your word would work mightily within us. Father, we pray that what we have not, you would give us, what we know not, you would teach us, what we are not, you would make us. And Father, by the working of your word, may eternal fruit be born today in this, your church, in these, your people. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts that would be soft to believe and obey what your word teaches us today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we arrive at Mark 14 in our study of the gospel. And as we come to this chapter, we come to the longest chapter of Mark's gospel. The Tuesday of Holy Week, which we looked at in Mark 11, Mark 12, and Mark 13, is now past. It's in the rearview mirror, if you will. And the events that will lead to the climactic crucifixion of Christ continue to unfold. 
And the events that Mark lays out in this particular chapter that we now come to lead us to the abandonment of Christ. When we come to the end of Mark 14, Jesus is seemingly left all alone. He has been deserted by his followers. He is handed over to Roman authorities. He has been arrested, falsely tried. And then in Mark 15, he will be crucified. When Mark opens chapter 14, he informs us that it is now Wednesday of Holy Week. He gives us a a date two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And most biblical scholars agree that on this day of Holy Week, uh, the gospel record is noticeably silent about what Jesus himself was doing. There's not much information given about Jesus and the activities of his disciples on this day. However, what we discover is that actions were still unfolding. Things were still happening. Mark tells us this. Most notably, that plots were being hatched and plans were being made for the demise and destruction of Jesus. That's what we find when we come to the beginning of Mark 14. And while the scenes begin to shift in this chapter, as the week continues to advance, Mark returns to a very familiar structure. He begins Mark 14 in a very familiar way. As we've studied through Mark's gospel, we've seen him employ this particular literary technique. It's here again before us in the verses that we've read. In our text today, we have what I've described for you previously as a scripture sandwich. I realize it's uh, a little risky to talk about sandwiches this close to lunch, but just bear with me. Because that's what Mark is making for us here in the text. It's a literary technique that he employs to to share the gospel of Jesus. Uh, Many Bible scholars see Mark doing this as many as 12 times. Some count even more, and there's still more to come in Mark 14. But just to give you a, a brief reminder of what I'm speaking of when I speak of a scripture sandwich, think back with me to our study of Mark chapter 5, if you can go back that far in your, your memory. In Mark 5, we have the story of uh, Jairus's daughter who was sick and ill to the point of death, and he sends for Jesus to come, and Jesus makes his way toward Jairus's house, but On the way, that narrative, that story is interrupted as Jesus encounters a a great throng of people and pressing through that throng was a woman who had an issue of blood. And she possessed great faith, so much so she said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I know that I can be made whole. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus perceived that virtue had gone out of him. He stopped the, uh, the caravan and wanted to know who touched him. The woman came forward and Jesus pronounced, go your way, your faith has made you whole. And then Mark picks up the story of Jairus' daughter. No need to come, she's already dead, but Jesus goes anyway and goes into that room and raises her to life. It's a very interesting technique. Mark begins with one story, but before he completes it, he inserts another And Mark does this for a very particular reason. It reminds us that Mark, in giving us his gospel, is not simply seeking to communicate facts and history to us, but he is seeking to give us theological truth. Mark arranges his gospel in a theological fashion. And in these scripture sandwiches, Mark gives us the interpretation that he wants us to arrive at. What I mean is Mark is arranging the scripture in a particular way so that we can arrive at the intended meaning of it. And Mark does that again here in our text this morning. It's clear that that's what he's doing. It's clear because verses 1 and 2 give us one piece of bread. These verses are some very dark verses, the sinister plotting of the religious elite to arrest Jesus and then to put him to death. That matches the end of our passage this morning in verses 10 and 11, where Mark speaks to us about Judas Iscariot and his plot to betray Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders. These are two very dark uh, scenes that are painted here, but these these verses give us the, the bread of the Scripture sandwich. And then in the middle of that, Mark loads it up 
He, he gives us the contents. He gives us the peanut, peanut butter and jelly, if you will, or the, uh, the bacon and tomato and cheese, or the bananas, or whatever sandwich you want this morning. Mark just piles it on in verses 3 through 9. Well, why does Mark do this? Well, because he's wanting us to see something very clearly. In many of these instances where Mark is making these scripture sandwiches, if you will, he's using that structure to highlight for us some important contrast. In the story of Mark 5, he uses the, the faith of that woman with the issue of blood to contrast the faith of Jairus and the concern over his daughter. Well, he does the same thing here as we come to the Wednesday of Holy Week. He gives us some important contrast. In fact, there's at least four here in the text, but these four contrasts lead us to the text's ultimate meaning where Mark paints a picture for us of what beautiful worship looks like. That's the thrust of Mark 14, 1 through 11. Beautiful worship. And I hope before we end our time this morning that, that we'll have a clear understanding of what beautiful worship is and that our endeavor and our aim will be to worship in that way. But to get there, we need to see these contrasts. Now, as we go through these points this morning, I'm going to give you four contrasts. There's going to be a lot of words on the screens. Uh, to my pastor pals, don't worry about those. Uh, when we get to the last contrast, we'll unpack what beautiful worship is the, the, the uh, elements of beautiful worship. And then on those slides, there'll be a word that's underlined. And the pastor pals, you just write those down. Everybody else, you got to get it all, okay? There's no pass for you. But that'll save some hand cramps from happening, hopefully. But let's look at these contrasts. This is what Mark is wanting us to see as he puts the text together. He, he's got the, the bread and he's got the contents in the middle. And these two things are not the same. One is incredibly dark. One is incredibly joyful. So we need to see these contrasts. The first one that, that Mark gives us here in the text is the contrast between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. The contrast between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. This is where Mark opens chapter 14. He gives us a, a date, a time frame, which is unusual for Mark, so we need to note it. And he tells us that it's now two days before the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Mark is reminding us that in God's sovereignty, things are arriving at their appointed end. And the end of the earthly ministry of Jesus, climaxing in the crucifixion, coincides with the most important day of the year for the Jewish people, the day of Passover. Mark is telling us this day is drawing near, and this is according to God's design. That day of Passover was a day that was held holy by all the Jewish people. It was one of the most important, the most important day on their calendar. It was that day where they would commemorate God's deliverance out of bondage from Egypt. It was that day where a lamb would be killed and its blood sprinkled upon the mercy seat there in the Holy of Holies of the temple to provide atonement for their sins. It was that day where they would remember the provision of God's mercy for them. And Mark is telling us these things are lining up for that day. Now, here's what's interesting. That's God bringing things to its appointed end at the appointed time that he has determined. But Mark also tells us that we see human responsibility playing out. There's human agents at work. He tells us in the beginning of Mark 14 that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. And their plan was, in verse 2, to, to arrest him, to hold him while the festival is taking place, Passover is being celebrated, because the crowds were so large, and by and large, Jesus, he, he was looked on favorably by the populace. They looked at him and thought much of him, so they didn't want to get the crowds into an uproar, so they would arrest him, hold him in prison, and then once everything had kind of ended, the crowds had dispersed, going back to their homes, their villages, then they would put Jesus to death. This was their plan. And God would use their plan, but God would use their plan in his appointed way. I find it very interesting that as we've read Mark's gospel up to chapter 14, how many occasions have we seen uh, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, the Herodians, all working in concert to try to arrest Jesus? 
They want to get him. They want to get him. But time and time again, Jesus has escaped. Jesus has found another way to get out of Dodge, if you will. And now at this point in time, they have this plan. This is what we're going to do. We're going to arrest him, but we're going to hold him until everything is quieted down. Then we'll kill him. But isn't it interesting that in God's divine providence, Jesus is handed over to them by Judas Iscariot. And instead of their plan coming to pass, to wait till everything goes away, Jesus is crucified by the Romans at the discretion and direction of the Jewish leaders in the very middle of the most important day of the year for them. That's not by accident. That's by God's divine plan coming to pass. Mark sets this up, that we must remember there's a contrast between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. That the gospel is not some accident or some happenstance, that that things were just thrown together and they just unfolded in this this willy-nilly fashion. No, this this is God working out his plan to perfection. Peter preaches about this on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. There he stood and he proclaimed that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is divine sovereignty. It was always God's plan to send his son into the world, to lay down his life as a substitute and sacrifice for sinners. And God ordained that it would happen on that day when the Lamb of God would shed his blood for the sins of the world as the perfect and sufficient sacrifice. But Peter went on and said, This was according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge, but you crucified and killed him at the hands of lawless men. We see these two things here together in the text. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And that brings us to the second contrast. It's a contrast of insiders and outsiders. There's groups at play here in the text before us. The insiders are clear. It's the religious leaders It's the apostles, it's those who are close to Jesus. But Mark's reminding us in this text of something that is incredibly important. Closeness doesn't equate to faithfulness. Closeness doesn't equate to faithfulness. Or if you you prefer it another way, familiarity doesn't equate to faithfulness. The religious leaders were incredibly familiar with Jesus. They had encountered him in the temple on Tuesday. Questions had been asked. Answers had been given. They had seen his ministry across the years. Even the 12 that had walked with Jesus uh, day and night uh, for the past three years, they were intimately familiar, but yet they still missed so much. Of course, there's Judas Iscariot. Trusted among the twelve to be in charge of the money, but yet Mark tells us here in our text today that this insider would ultimately be the one who would betray Jesus and hand him over to religious authorities for execution. So Mark gives us these insiders, but he's quick to show us that it's the outsiders who seem to understand the most. Look in verse 3. This is where Mark begins to highlight this for us. He says, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... As he was reclining at table, a woman came. Outsiders. Mark sets the scene as being in Bethany. Now don't overthink this. Where is Bethany? It's outside of Jerusalem, isn't it? It's outside of where all the hustle and bustle is taking place. It's outside where everything is centered. It's outside where the temple is located. But this is where this event unfolds, outside of Jerusalem at Bethany. And it happens at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Who were lepers in this culture? They were the ultimate outsiders, weren't they? I mean, they were on the fringes of society itself. Now, we can presume because Jesus is having a a meal, a dinner in the house of this leper, that this Simon had encountered Jesus perhaps previously in his ministry and was healed from the leprosy. He's been made clean, but nevertheless, he carries this connotation of having been an outsider. But now Jesus is dining in his house in Bethany. I find it interesting. You may like this bit of information. I wouldn't hang my hat on it too much, but uh, it's very likely that it could be the case. Many scholars believe that Simon the leper may actually be the father of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. They too lived in Bethany. 
They were associates of Jesus. We know that they were present for this meal, which is clear. But an outsider. And then we see it again because Mark tells us that as Jesus is reclining at table with all of these men, suddenly there's a woman who comes upon the scene. This was not the cultural norm. Women did not associate with the men while they were eating unless they were serving them the food. For this woman, this unnamed woman in Mark's gospel, John tells us that it is in fact Mary, uh, the sister of Martha, the, the, the sister to Lazarus as well, that she comes in and engages in this incredible act. But it's this picture of insiders who don't seem to get it and outsiders who do. Reminds me of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. What is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in his presence. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our culture is consumed with trying to get the inside track, trying to climb the ranks, notability, notoriety, being recognized. Being internet famous, likes and follows, retweets, whatever platform you're on. Want to be on the inside of things. But Mark reminds us here that it wasn't those on the inside who got it right, but those who were on the outside. Don't miss that. And that brings us to the third contrast. The contrast of corruption and devotion. And this is the main contrast that Mark puts before us. It's the contrast of an unnamed woman and a named disciple. An unnamed woman who believed wholeheartedly in Jesus and an unnamed, or excuse me, a named disciple who would betray Jesus. And Mark does this intentionally because what we have in verses 3 uh, through 9 of Mark 14 is an event that John records as well in the Gospel of John chapter 12. And John tells us that that event transpired six days prior to the Passover. Mark begins his, his chapter here by telling us that it's now two days before the Passover. So what Mark has done is kind of taking a flashback approach. He's taking this event that happened earlier in the week, and he's inserting it here on this day when there's plotting and conniving and planning and all kinds of underhanded things going on for the particular purpose of showing this contrast between corruption in the heart of Judas Iscariot and devotion in the heart of Mary. It's the drastic contrast between malicious corruption and magnificent devotion. This is getting us to the heart of this passage. Listen to what one commentator said about this notable contrast in the text. For Judas, any price would do in exchange for Jesus. But for Mary, there was no price too high to expend upon Jesus. For Judas, 30 pieces of silver would do just fine. But for Mary, the worth of Jesus is immeasurable. In the text before us, Judas would rise up to sell out Jesus, but in the text, Mary bows down to serve him. In the text, Judas acts in treachery, but Mary acts in tenderness. Judas is determined uh, to, to see what he might get in exchange for Jesus, but Mary is determined that she might give uh, what she might give as an expression of love for Jesus. To Judas, Jesus was just like a piece of property to be sold. But to Mary, Jesus was the Lamb of God that would be slain. Judas was filled with selfish greed. Mary was filled with sweet gratitude. Judas was in uh, deceit, betraying Jesus, but Mary in devotion was believing in Jesus. For Judas, money was precisely the object he hoped to gain in exchange for Jesus. And for Mary, money was no object as an expression of her love for Jesus. For Judas, Jesus was a means to be used on behalf of material things, which was his ultimate goal. For Mary... Material things were simply an instrument to be used on behalf of Jesus, who was her goal. 
Judas filled the room with a stench of betrayal, but Mary filled it with a sweet-smelling aroma of adoration and affection. Judas' actions would lead to the pouring out of Jesus' blood, and Mary's actions lead to the pouring out of perfume in which she anoints Jesus. We can't miss this contrast. This is what Mark is doing intentionally. He's holding up this incredibly dark character to this incredibly bright one. Judas and Mary, a heart filled with corruption and a heart filled with devotion. And that brings us to the last contrast and the true heart of the text. The contrast between what is wasteful and what is beautiful. Between what is wasteful and what is beautiful. We've read the text, we've We've heard the scene unfold. Jesus is eating. Mary comes in. She has this precious gift, this this high-dollar perfume, and she breaks the bottle so that it can never be used again, and she pours it all over Jesus. And those who are sitting there with Jesus, lying there with Jesus at this table, they look at this event as it unfolds, and they are aghast. They are taken aback. Mark tells us they were indignant within themselves at what Mary was doing. And they said, this is such a waste. Why is she wasting this precious, precious ointment? But then Jesus spoke up. And Jesus said, you leave her alone. I don't know about you, but I'm glad to know Jesus has got you back. She said, you leave her alone. You quit saying these things. You quit thinking these things. You quit giving her such a a hard time over this. Why? Because Jesus says in in verse 6, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Do you see the contrast? Nearly everybody else in the room besides Mary and Jesus says, this is such a wasteful occurrence. But Jesus says, oh no, this is a beautiful occurrence. We've got to see that. We've got to understand that. We've got to see the value of heaven here. What Jesus says is that Mary has done a beautiful thing to me. She has come to me in adoration. She has come to me in worship. And what we need to see in the text this morning is uh, the beautiful expression of worship that is here. The elements of beautiful worship that unfold in this passage. And the question we've got to ask ourselves is, is that how we worship? Is this the heart that I have when I come before Jesus? Is my heart one of devotion or is it one of corruption? Am I more like these insiders or am I more like these outsiders? So let me give you these four expressions of beautiful worship that we see happening here. Number one, beautiful worship gives its very best. Beautiful worship gives its very best. Jesus. And the scene that unfolds beginning in verse 3, there in the house of Simon the leper, as Mary comes into the room, as she comes upon the scene, she is bringing the very best that she could to Jesus. In fact, Mark records Jesus as saying in verse 8 that she has done what she could. Now let's think on that for just a second because that sounds somewhat familiar to me. Uh, Imagine for a moment if, if we just skipped over chapter 13, and the questions of what, when, and why regarding the end of the temple and the end of time, we're back to the end of chapter 12, right? And what concludes chapter 12 there in the temple as Jesus is leaving? Him watching the treasury boxes, and guess who comes by to drop in their offering? A widow woman. And she puts in just two little mites, two little pennies. And what did Jesus say? She gave all that she had. Isn't it interesting that here we are and leading to the climactic days of Holy Week and the climax of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that on these two occasions at the end of chapter 12, the beginning of chapter uh, 14 here, Jesus is upholding these two women. One who gave very little, another who gave a whole lot, but Jesus says they all gave their best. Mary comes upon the scene holding this, this jar of precious ointment. It was probably a family heirloom that had been handed down to her. This was uh, her retirement plan. This was uh, an incalculable cost that she was holding. 
It was a body of a bottle of costly perfume that she would break and dispense to anoint the body of Jesus. It's interesting how much detail Mark gives us of this bottle of perfume. He He uses a lot of space in the economy of Scripture to describe it. He speaks of the container, that it's alabaster. Not just a a cheap plastic. I know they didn't have plastic then. Bear with me. Work with me. It's not just some throwaway container here. This is a highly valuable container. And then it speaks of the contents. It was pure nard on the inside, a very precious ointment. Uh, Historians and Bible scholars tell us that this ointment could only be found, it could only be obtained uh, from regions in India. So think of where it had to go from India to get to Palestine, into the, the home, into the hands of Mary at Simon the leper. Understanding that trip alone would help you recognize the cost that everybody was seeing. Mark tells us the disciples were indignant in themselves because the cost of this ointment was was almost unbelievable. 300 denarii. A denarius was a day's wage. 300 denarii was a, a full year's salary. This wasn't five and dime perfume. All right, Mary didn't stop at the convenience store and drop a few quarters in the, the turn slot there and come out with just a little, a little vial of smell good that she was going to put on Jesus. No, this, this was a, a treasure beyond compare. And Mary breaks the bottle. She's not going to pour out just a drop or two. No, the entire contents of this pure nard, this, this entire year's wage was given in worship to Jesus. Mary reminds us that beautiful worship is when we give the very best that we can to him. So I ask you this morning, is that what you give Jesus? Are you giving Jesus your very best today? Now, I'm not saying you need to empty out your bank account this morning. I'm not saying you need to go and and find the greatest treasure that's in your house that you can get your hands on and hawk it and sell it and give all the proceeds to the church or uh, to needs or or to ministry. That's not what I'm saying. I just want to know, are you giving your best to Jesus? Are you giving your best when you come here on a Sunday morning? Are you coming eager and prepared, longing to worship, ready to worship? When you stand there and sing, are you singing your very best? That's what beautiful worship is. Beautiful worship recognizes that Jesus Christ is the true treasure. And then it simply says, I want to give all that I can to him. Are you doing that? That's why Jesus commends her. That's why Jesus says this story will be told in memory of her because she was giving her best to him. What a way to worship. But I'm afraid so often in our world today, we give Jesus the leftovers. We give Jesus whatever we can scrounge together. Jesus, I'll, I'll give it all to the world six days a week, and if there's any left in the tank when we come on the Lord's Day, I'll give you what's there. Oh, God, help us. Mary said, you get the best I've got. She gave it to him. Beautiful worship, secondly, faces criticism from others. Mark this down. If you love Jesus and live for Jesus like Mary does in this text, you can expect to face criticism from others. Listen to me. The world, the world is okay with nominal Christianity. The world is okay as long as you don't take this Jesus thing too seriously. As long as you didn't get too carried away with it. The world's okay with that. But when you do it like Mary does here in this text, when you go all in with Jesus, when you give your very best to him, you better, you better know that they're going to come at you. You're going to face criticism from others. That's exactly what happens here. And surprise, surprise, it's not the criticism from the outsiders, but from the insiders. It's the apostles looking at what's going on going, are you kidding me? And they're indignant, Mark tells us. That word is the same word that Mark used earlier in the gospel where he was talking about the conversation that James and John had with Jesus about uh, getting seats of prominence in the coming kingdom. When the other disciples and apostles heard that, Mark says they were indignant with them. They were filled with rage at them. How could they ask such a question as that? That's the same feeling they have now regarding Mary. Why would she waste this stuff? 
Why would she take this precious heirloom that has been passed down to her and pour it on the head of Jesus here? Plus, it's stinking up the entire room. What is she thinking? And then I love what Mark says. He says at the end of verse 5, and they scolded her. So these thoughts started within. It was all kind of a rage coming from within. And then Mark says, it it, it just kind of leapt out. They began to scold her in the presence of Jesus. That word scold there in the Greek language is a very interesting word. It, It means to flare the nostrils. Those of you that have been around horses, familiar with horses, you've seen this. Horse is standing there and it gets a little agitated. It'll let you know. Nostrils flare. That's what they were doing. They were snorting and they were scoffing. I know none of you do that. Wives, now is not a good time to look at your husband. That's what they were doing. They were scoffing at her and scolding her. They were flaring their nostrils at her. How could you do something that's As ridiculous as this, Mary, mark this down. You take living for Jesus seriously. And there are going to be people that look at you that way. What what do you mean you're quitting the job and going to seminary? What what, what do you mean you're selling the house and all the possessions and taking the kids and going overseas to tell other people about Jesus? What do you mean you can't Go here on a Sunday because you got to gather with the church. Are you really serious about all that stuff? Are you kidding me? Listen to me. The world is fine as long as you don't take it serious. But you take it serious and you mark it down, you're going to face criticism. You're going to face attacks. And you sometimes will be surprised at who those criticisms come from. Beautiful worship faces criticism from others. Number three, beautiful worship keeps focused on Jesus. This is so amazing to me in this story. Mary comes into this room, breaking the barriers of a society. She comes into this room with the greatest treasure she possesses. She breaks it, pours it over Jesus. She is entirely focused on Jesus. It's interesting that anytime we encounter Mary in in the Gospels, we we oftentimes find her sitting at Jesus' feet. What a place to be. That's where her focus fell over and over again. She was focused on Jesus. Everybody else in the room, though, they were just looking at her. She was looking at Jesus. All she cared about in that room was Jesus. All that mattered to her was Jesus in that room. Everybody else was oblivious to Jesus, and they were looking at her. They, they missed the most important thing in the room. If we want to worship well, if we want to have beautiful worship, it means we will keep our focus on Jesus because he is what matters most. That when we gather here on this Lord's Day for worship, it's not necessarily about who's here or who's not, who's got what on and who doesn't. It's not about, can I get the best donut or can I get another cup of coffee? Listen, all of those things, they're not necessarily bad, but they don't matter. What matters is Jesus. Are you coming for Jesus? Are you focused on Jesus? Are you looking to Jesus? This is what Mary shows us. This is what makes worship beautiful when it's all about him. It's all about him. I think this is another Another important placement of this text in Mark's gospel by Mark. Again, the end of chapter 12. That widow is giving her offerings to God. Jesus says, that's right. She's given all that she had. She's done a good and glorious thing. Now we come to Mark 14. And Jesus has said, Mary has done a beautiful thing. She has given to me in an act of worship. Jesus wants us to be clear. As we worship God, we're worshiping him. In fact, we can't worship God unless we come through Jesus Christ. So we must keep our focus on Him. And oh, Mary did that. Mary saw and understood more than most. Jesus tells us something really, really interesting here. He says, she has done what she could. Verse 8, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. 
It seems to be the indication that the act that Mary undertook in this occasion of declaring her love for Jesus, her adoration for Jesus, her worship of Jesus, was undertaken in part because she seemed to understand what Jesus had been saying. He was going to die. How many times has Jesus said that already? He's told the disciples over and over and over again, we're going to go to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be handed into the hands of lawless men and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. We're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be crucified. And over and over again, the disciples are like, huh? What? No. Really? I don't think so. I mean, over and over again, it plays out like that, doesn't it? Mary has heard these things and, and she seems to be, be holding on to it. Jesus, you, you said you're going to be killed. You're, you're going to be crucified. You said you were going to Jerusalem and, and your life would be taken. And so she's come to, in a sense, anoint his body for burial. I don't know that she understood all the implications that were to come, but she at least understood this. In Jewish custom, a body that had died would, would be anointed before it would be placed into the tomb. Well, because Jesus was crucified just prior to the Sabbath beginning and in the haste where he was taken down, that didn't happen for him. This is the reason we find on Easter Sunday when the ladies come to the tomb after the Sabbath has ended, they're bringing spices to anoint the body of Jesus. That custom wasn't able to be fulfilled. But Jesus says it's happening here. Days before he will actually be crucified, Mary in this act is anointing him for his upcoming burial. Oh, as I read that... As I read the scene unfolding here, that she anointed his head with oil. John tells us that it went from head to toe, that she washed his feet with the oil and, and used her hair there to, uh, to do so. Such a, a, a powerful scene. But as I see this picture in my mind of her anointing his head with oil, I think of a passage that you all know. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul, leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then we come to verse 5 of that familiar psalm. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I, I'm just inclined to think that maybe Jesus was thinking about Psalm 23 in this occasion. Because here he was, sitting at a table in the presence of his enemies, and Mary comes in and anoints his head with oil. And he's reminded, there's a few days to go, but surely goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the way to the cross. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, for he will not suffer my body to face corruption in Sheol in the grave, but he will be raised. Oh, I think Jesus was thinking on these things as Mary was engaging in this beautiful act of worship. And before we land the plane on this last point, let me... Let me just speak to one thing very quickly about what Jesus draws our attention to here. It seems much of the confusion among those present outside of Judas was why didn't this, why didn't this gift be sold and the money used to take care of the poor? Why waste it? Well, number one, they hadn't fully understood yet just how valuable Jesus was. They hadn't come to the place that Mary was at and seeing that and knowing that he was the ultimate treasure. Now, Jesus here in his words isn't saying that we, we neglect the poor. No, instead he's making provisions for them. He says, yes, you always have the poor with you. Do good for them. Serve them, minister to them as you have opportunity, but you will not always have me. This is an opportunity to worship me. And Mary sees that. But as we hear Jesus talking about the poor and the consternation among the disciples over that money not being given to the poor, again, I think Mary may be understood more than most. Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became what? Poor. I dare say to you that on this occasion and during his earthly ministry, Jesus was the poorest of the poor. 
There was no one that was poorer than Jesus. You say, how so can that be, preacher? Think of all that he left behind. He stepped off of a throne in glory and took upon the robe of flesh, fashioned himself in the likeness of a servant, and became obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. Paul says he became poor. So it's right that Mary would give this offering to him in an act of beautiful, beautiful worship. And then finally this morning, what we see is that beautiful worship receives heaven's approval. Verse 9, Jesus said, Truly, verily, verily. Jesus says, Amen. He front ends his statement here. He wants those who are listening to know that this is profound. And the statement is that this gospel being proclaimed in all the world will share this encounter. It will tell the story of what Mary has done. It will be told in memory of her. And I would just ask you, has that not happened here today? Is that not a fulfillment in part of what Jesus said there in verse 9? That as we looked at Mark 14, as we considered again the gospel of the Son of God, that he would lay his life down as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world as the ultimate Passover sacrifice? As that story is proclaimed, it's rightly told of Mary who came and worshipped him in such a beautiful way. Giving all that she had, her very best. Facing the criticism of those who were looking on. She remained focused on Jesus and she received heaven's approval. I wonder, would your worship today receive likewise? Would your worship be commended by heaven. As I end this morning, I'm reminded of the words of a familiar hymn written by Isaac Watts in 1707. Charles Wesley wrote more than 6,000 hymns. We still sing some of those today. But Wesley once commented, I would give all the hymns that I have written if I could have but written just this one. That's how much he adored and thought of Isaac Watts' hymn. Isaac penned the words. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my Lord. And all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? And this last stanza, it captures the heart of Mary in worship. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's the worship that Jesus is worthy of. Because he gave his all at the cross for your sins. Is that the worship you're giving him today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. And Lord, I pray that in the power of your spirit, your word would work in our hearts and our lives, that Lord, our worship of you may be beautiful, that our hearts would be set ablaze in love for you above all. Father, help us to give our very best as we come before you on the Lord's day. As we live for you throughout the week, let us not hold back, but let us count it all joy to proclaim that you are our supreme treasure. You are our all in all, our everything. Father, I pray that when others would seek to slow us down or hold us back, throw cold water on hot burning hearts, I pray that we would just press on, keeping focused on Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who would lay down his life for our sins.
the one who for our sakes became poor, that we might become rich through him. Father, help our worship to rise to the level of heaven's divine approval. Were we to give all that we had, it would still seem so lacking for the love that Christ has shown in, uh, to us. So Father, capture our hearts again by that love. Help our worship to be beautiful. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing together. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning moment and pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us today to come and worship before you. And Father, we thank you that you are the supreme treasure of our lives, that there's nothing that compares to you. So Lord, today, help us to give all that we can to make as much of you as we can. Father, I pray for these who are before me. Let their faith in Christ be firm. Let their eyes be fixed upon Jesus, the author, perfecter, the finisher of their faith. May they be filled with your spirit and yielded to your ways. And may the Lord bless your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.